If you're a 10, 20% company, no one's heard of you for the most part. The problem with Hire for is three problems. The first is it leaves out the most important thing, which is sourcing. So I used the Microsoft example because sourcing was less important because you had a huge inbound, but you're some startup no one's heard of. People you don't know are not going to come interview there because they don't even know about your company. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas. Venture capital investors and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. In this episode, my guest is Stephen Lurie. Stephen is the founder of Team Builder Ventures a Silicon Valley-based venture capital firm to help founders build world-class teams. Stephen was a member of Zynga's executive staff from the early days of the company through IPO. He also helped build Zynga's team in Bangalore. Stephen, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. Thank you, LP. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us about yourself. What brought you to venture capital? Sure. The way I got into venture was through an operating background. In the early 90s, I was a product manager in product management at Microsoft in Seattle. It was a real heyday of the company run by Bill Gates, and it was an exciting time to be there. I was there for six years and moved in 99 to San Francisco for a dot-com, for a startup, which was called Keen.com at the time. Exited seven years later as Ingenio. It's one of the few successful startups from that year. And I had a variety of roles in product and ended up managing a whole bunch of different teams. And then I tried to start a few things. I was entrepreneur in residence at a venture fund. And then I went to Zynga as an early executive, as the first head of mobile when the iPhone was new. We're figuring it out. Later, I ran several game groups and actually went to Bangalore, India to scale a team. And also uh, later came back to head up international. So that's kind of what I did as a job. What I was kind of known for was the team person. I really enjoyed helping people. It's kind of a hobby for me. That is something that I ended up doing at all these companies around team building and hiring. Team building is one of the highest priorities, and that's also where CEOs and founders spend enormous amount of time, and mostly unsuccessfully or at least inefficiently. How is Team Builder Ventures different from other VC firms? So it's a, it's a venture capital fund that aims to be a service venture fund that helps founders build world-class teams. So it's structured as a regular venture fund. It's a $10 million fund. You know, I have limited partners and make investments. But it's different in other ways is that it's really focused on providing the service. I don't serve on the board. There's no board. There's no leading rounds. And really work to help the founders and actually commit to a number of hires that I'll actually find for them. Because what I find for a lot of founders is that you know, I have more experience in building teams at startups than they do. And I have networks that they may not have in other ways to reach people, especially engineers. Uh, and so I'm able to help them. That's one of the, the key value add of the fund. I would say that because of that, the fund can invest very horizontally. So we're very broad in domains. We tend to focus when there is not an HR team yet at the company. So it could be pre-seed, seed, or series A. The company could be two, five, 10, 20, 30, 40, even gets up to 50 or 60 people. 
before they get an HR team. And the founders at that point, although on point for finding the team people, members, they're basically doing the recruiting and they have to go to the board meetings and say why they're missing their hiring plans. And more companies miss their hiring plans than miss product or revenue plans. This is very unpredictable and it's, it's a war for talent. But that's when I like to help. Yeah, every single investment I've made in a startup, all of those startups have struggled with recruiting. Why is it so challenging? And what are some classic mistakes that CEOs and founding teams make? There's three stages. First is that when there's, let's say there's two founders and they get to 10 people. So that's hiring eight people. Product is probably not developed. It's a five-person company hiring two more people or whatever to get to 10 people. And it's, it's hard, but not that hard. Like as a founder, each of you should be able to bring in four people that you've known or worked with or somehow kind of scrambled to pull together. At that point, though, what happens is you enter the second phase, and that's a really brutal phase. And that is when you're about 10 people, a lot of the founders run out of people they know. And also they get busier because maybe the product launches or they raise a Series A and now they have a, a board or a more formal board or a larger board than they, they had before. When they get to maybe 50, 60 people, they hire some HR people, maybe even a head of HR, and they can hand it off. That's the third phase. But that second phase, it's like the most brutal kind of valley, <laughs> right, of death, where founders are finding that they have less time, have run out of their network generally, they're hiring mid-level engineers. It's not like they're hiring executives. Generally, they're hiring individual contributors are very hard to find and to convince to join some company that no one's heard of. So it's that period that I like to have found. So one part is that it's it's hard because of those factors. When you run out of your network, you don't yet have an HR team helping you. You're on your own. And it's hard to get third-party recruiters at that point because they get paid on the percentage of the salary of the person. So if it's a mid-level engineer, the salary is going to be decent, but probably not as high as an executive. Also, it's much harder for them to find and convince people to join some company they've never heard of. So that's why it's hard. Second reason it's hard is that the mindset is that the product is often the main focus of a company, as it should be. What they realize is that very quickly, product and the company building, so the company as a product, really have to be on equal footing. Because if you're going to start scaling beyond just a couple of people, you have to build a, pro- a company, and it's not just product, but you always have to be recruiting. I tell founders, don't always hire. Be very careful hiring, but always be recruiting. And I think a lot of founders think of it like finding office space. It's something that they have to do <laughs> at one time, like let's do it, let's move, and then move on. They'll often approach it like that. I've got to find this engineer, let's put a focus on it, let's try to get it done so I can get back to the real work is how they see it, like building the product or serving customers. What you realize is that it's constant. So they got to treat it like pro- they have to product manage team building. You need owners, you need processes, you need, and it has to be something to do every day. I tell founders you should be spending one hour a day per open rack, at least. And that could be updating job descriptions, reaching out to your network. It's something that you do every day. You should report on it at your weekly meetings. How many referrals you got? How many people did you interview? How many did you follow up with? It's not something you just sort of do on the side. It has to be sort of that equal. So I think it's both the challenge of the market and the stage they're in, but also the mindset. For a lot of them, they don't have the processes they do around the product. They don't have the rigor, the owners, and the metrics. 
And if they start thinking about it like a product, that often helps a lot. So at the earliest stages, when it's just the founders and a few employees, when they recruit at that time, they usually tap into their network and they each can bring in two to four people into the company. But when they reach the point of 10 to 15 employees, that's when recruitment becomes a necessary skill that the CEOs have to learn. And I've noticed that successful companies have good CEOs who really focus on that. I think that's what you're referring to and how to do that is a trick that you can help them with. Yeah, well, I give a talk and I like to give advice on it to, to everybody. The Team Builder Ventures essentially runs a free recruiting firm that, that's only for the portfolio companies, right? The reason it actually can be venture other recruiting firms is that a lot of engineers don't want to talk to recruiters, even founders, because they're always getting inbound like on LinkedIn, but they very rarely hear from a venture capitalist. So that's part of what I offer is team dual adventures, both advice and recruiting. But on the advice part, what I tell them is you've got to do it, like I said, product management, and it really should be every part of it. You can break it down into three basic parts. One is source. You have to source. You got to get people you don't know to come interview at your company. Number two is you got to interview them. And three is you got to onboard them well so that they become productive and retain. So the sourcing is where, again, a lot of founders at first and it might be, even seem easy, right? I just went and told a couple of friends and a few people joined. But again, when they run out of their network, it becomes very hard. So in the sourcing, the one I really recommend is referrals, internal referrals, getting all the team members to refer. So when you have 10 people at your company and you're about to double, let's say you're doubling to 20 in a year, all you have to do is each person has to get one person <laughs> hired from the network. It's totally doable. And even the most introverted engineers or whatever, they can do it. They have people they went to school with, people they grew up with, and they should be passionate about the company. They should be able to tell the story in a convincing way, but they don't. But a lot of times is that especially engineers see networking and all that kind of stuff or referring people as both networking kind of an evil word and a waste of time or just they're giving something to the company. And what I try to coach founders or get them to understand is that you got to teach each other people that it's a skill that they're learning. They're, they're not giving you the time. You're actually giving them an opportunity to practice a team building because later they'll be leading teams, or leading companies, or if they're not, it's very good to be able to attract talent they can practice. Once people start seeing it as a skill development, not a favor they're doing to you, then it's very important. That's a key thing to do because people get job satisfaction from having a purpose at work, but the best purpose that they have is to advance their own career and to grow. And if you can show that they can grow this way. So that's something I've worked with people. The other one is interview. Uh, you'd be shocked at how lack, lackadaisical the interview processes are startups. I mean, I've had instances where people show up and then, you know, for an interview and the person's not there. <laughs> it's happened to me at a startup. A person went to ski in Tahoe and, and then tell me and I drove down there for the interview. So I tell people, product manager, design it. You can do it in 30 minutes in a, in a whiteboard, a meeting with the interview team. How are you going to interview people? What's the first five minutes of the interview experience? How about having a greeter there? How about giving them material about your company? How about giving them a schedule? Telling them when you're going to follow up with them. Also training the people who are going to interview. It doesn't take a lot of training, but just practice some questions you're going to have. What are you looking for? And, the, and the get alignment and just have an interview process that is a branding experience for your company that makes your company look good. It makes you look like you have your act together. And it's, again, companies get tired. The first five people they interview for a role, but sometimes they end up 
interviewing 30, 40 people, and they just get tired and it becomes, balls start dropping. And then there's onboarding where you just, you want to make people feel successful in the first uh, week or two by giving them projects they can succeed on and show that publicly. So anyway, those are the three areas where I coach founders that they can do one or two key things differently and they'll be a way ahead of the rest of the crowd. I have more questions on this, but I want to talk about the investing and then come back to recruiting and sourcing and onboarding parts. What do you look for in an entrepreneur when you first meet them? What kind of companies do you invest in? What stages do you want to meet these founders? So there's several questions. As far as what I'm looking for, it's very broad because everybody has team building challenges. I used to think it might be the younger founders who would want it more, but actually I found that it's founders who've been founders before are the ones that are like, how do we get you in this deal? <laughs> because they realize how painful it is. I look for a wide range. I mean, I've invested in all ages. I have a 70-year-old founder in the portfolio of people like out of PhD program, 25 or whatever it is. So very open on age, very open on, I'm an immigrant myself. So I have a lot of immigrant investors, a lot of women founders and executives, higher percentage of minority than common, just given being an immigrant myself and just that kind of stuff. So it looked very broadly. I will say that it's very broad. Consumer enterprise, hardware, software, deep tag, not deep tag, anything that can give the kind of return. I've got biotech in there, but uh, mostly software and hardware. I will say this though: I feel that you know I did angel deals before the fund invested in company that was bought by Unity, went public, Zwaro, Angelist, and back then it was hard to fundraise. There weren't that many companies in this space, but now it's the opposite. And there's a lot of support and encouragement, whether it's classes at Stanford and Berkeley and things like that, on how to do startups or to accelerators and to a bunch of seed funds and active angels and rolling funds on angelists and all that. So if there's an idea, there tends to be lots of companies in that space. And if you're investing before they have an HR team is when they need the help the most, it's, it's early stage. It's very hard that, so I tend to look for less crowded spaces which tends to be more technical founders. I can give a few examples if you want, but the last two deals that I've done have come out of labs of professors, one at University of California, San Francisco, it's a biotech one, and the other out of University of Washington, MIT PhD professor there, came out of their labs. So that is, those are deals I like a lot. I'm very, the, the bottom line is very open. It really the major kind of filter is that it's generally when they, before they have an HR team. So you're kind of a generalist when it comes to investments, but you're looking for certain types of founding teams. Technical founders are great for you. Well, you know, again, I don't want to close off anything. I've got some great performing companies that have known of technical founders. I'm just saying in this market when there tends to be 10, 20 companies in, in a space, if it's, if it's if the product's not that hard to develop, there may be a lot of competitors. So I tend to uh, do that, but I'm open. I'm very open. When you meet founders, what happens in the first few meetings? And when do you say, well, yeah, I want to make an investment? Well, one of the mantras of the fund is to, I want to be high value add, low impact. So even on the first meetings, I like to give more value than I get. I, I, I just like what I'm about. I told you one of my hobbies was helping friends. I've set up 10 marriages. I've, I've been helping friends, career coaching them, uh, giving them career coaching advice. 
and finding them jobs for a long time that's led that led to this fund because I was doing this anyway as a hobby. Uh, I'm very active with Stanford alumni mentoring and Cardinal X and StartX and all that, Cardinal Ventures. And I meet the founder. I try to give them value by often going through the presentation that I give on team building so that they can learn some lessons and walk away with some value. But I learn about the business. Then I have a due diligence process that I really try to balance speed with efficiency because you want to respect their time, but also have to do real due diligence. Due diligence. So I get the same materials that the lead gets. That's the first stage and cap table presentation, financials, and if they have a term sheet. And I can often, a lot of times, make a decision on that. If it goes to the next stage, it's expert review. I bring in experts. I have experts in many areas because we invest so horizontally. And a lot of times, the founders want to connect with the experts. I've only done with the founder consent. I never send materials around. I never talk to people without them knowing. I send them a list. Here's the people. And more times than not, they want to talk to the people because in several cases, they've been people they've wanted to talk to but haven't been able to reach. And in several, they've invited them to invest as well, but they met through my development process. And the third is always then sync with the lead. Make sure that the lead, how they're thinking about it, how committed they are to it. It's less about the brand name funds. And there's so many funds nowadays, so many great people in venture. It's really how, how much is that lead going to go to bat for them? Because... There's many things the lead investor does, like provide big checks, serve on the board, and, think, and do bridges, things that I'm less able to do given this fund size. So that's how I like to interact with founders. So what can founders do to make the first few meetings effective? I have the deals. That the fund has done 30 deals. We do about 30 in the fund. I'm about, there's one or two more left in the fund, and then I'll do the next fund. And I did 18 angel deals before that. I would say that most of the deals in the fund were referred by lead investors, which is actually pretty rare because it used to be in the 90s when I was at Keen and Junior, we were fundraising, they would what's called syndicate. They called it another set of eyes. The lead would come in and say, let's get a co-lead because there weren't that many venture funds. They seemed like there were about 100, but technically they're probably like 300 now. Now there's 3,000. That's what it would happen. That doesn't happen really anymore. So venture capitalists are not used to sending deals that they're doing. I'm not talking about the next round. They'll love to refer you to invest in the later rounds, but I'm talking about the very same deal that they're doing for the first time. They don't bring in other funds, but I'm a $10 million fund on purpose, and I want to remain that size so that I'm not seen as a threat, right? The check size is couple 100K. It's kind of the angel level. So that I'm, I'm viewed as like an angel to them. So most of the deals come that way. But then there's some that I meet on my own. I'm pretty active at Stanford. So let me give you an example of each. Tonal, I was referred and ever grateful for Rob Coneybear Shasta. Uh, by the way, plug for him. He's amazing. Tim Chang from Mayfield led the seed. who's also amazing. So anyway, Rob uh, referred the deal. We, we met and a few months later, he just said, I'm looking at this deal. You want to look at it? I introduced me to the founder. The founder in that case, very technical, master's in electrical engineering, hardware engineer, who in, in this case actually came from an enterprise background, but this is a consumer app. It's a, a weight training device that's kind of for the home gym. It's amazing. Very high net promoter score. We have one of the first early ones and we love it. Use it. My wife never did weight training now is very active. He had, uh, it was more of a personal experience. He had started going to the gym and was losing weight by weight training and said, Hey, well, I don't have to go to the gym. Why don't I have the gym in a box essentially with instruction and all that kind of stuff. 
It's a little bit like Peloton for cycling. It's like for weight training. Very different, much harder product. And it's an amazing product. So when I met him, you know, the, he was a very compelling story. Ali Arati, just a great person. I could tell could be a leader because I want the founders to be the CEOs at exit, you know, at IPO, thousand person company. And Mark Pincus did that at, at Zynga. And if you look at Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and, you know, all these kind of great companies, those are the kind of people who uh, are Mark Zuckerberg. They're the founders. So I'm very much a founder going all the way. In fact, that's one of the questions I have. Do you want to continue being CEO? And I want them to do it. And I want to help them be successful in team building to get there. So anyway, he was a techno founder. I thought that he could scale. It's a large market. But also it was, you know, I thought the product would be really hard to develop. The competition would be limited. And that's been the case. They don't really have, no one knew the electromagnetic. There's obviously many substitute products. Arch was one where I just met him at a Stanford event. Alumni, they were PhDs, graduates of the PhD program in material science and engineering. And we actually met at a 150-year, whatever, anniversary event for, we were doing a mentoring program, actually, helping current students in that way. And again, a great lead, Jeff Clavier from, now it's called Uncork, Time Software, but technical founders, but also they really had a compelling vision. Again, I thought they could scale, Andrew Sherman uh, and Tim Burke. Andrew's a real leader, and being a leader in StartX, that part I really like. People who are open to team building help. Large market, great leads. Again, what didn't seem like a very crowded market. They help manufacturing sort of go to the next level. So they have IoT devices and, and manufacturing plants and then use the data. So it's a heavy software play, even though there's, there's hardware in there. What I thought on both those cases, those companies, but it was all of them, they were very good partners. I got a number of people hired. I had a product at Arch. I got a um, product manager, many engineers, a Caltech engineer and a Stanford engineer. Tonal got a bunch of engineers and, and QA and product people, people hired there because they were just very responsive and they were so compelling. So I send people there and then they become interested because at the time, nobody had heard of Tonal. They hadn't launched. And Arch was doing manufacturing stuff and it was also very early. So I also look for, can these people attract? If I send them people, I spend hours and hours a day recruiting for these companies. It's like tip of the iceberg. They don't even see all this work. It's a ton of work. If I send to do this, get somebody all excited about a company and send them there, well, can the company carry the ball, you know, or, or will they drop the ball? And I thought with these founders that they would be, you know, great at team building and they both have. Wow, this is very interesting. Uh, you're giving real-life examples here. I am tempted to ask you a controversial question about recruiting. The popular advice that many VCs give to entrepreneurs is that they need to hire slow and fire fast. Do you agree with that? No, I don't. That is one of the platitudes. There's a bunch of these platitudes that people say, like, A's hire A's, B's hire B. You know, what does that mean? You know, like everybody thinks they're an A. You know, like it's, it's not actionable. The hire slow, fire fast. It's not even that it's, it's not action. People will actually take action on it, but it's the wrong action. Or it's, or let's put it this way. It's more nuanced. It's not totally wrong, but there's more nuance to it. So the, that's one where I'm really on a, that's the one that I really emphasize, even though there's many other platitudes, but most of them are kind of just innocuous, like, A's hire A's, B's hire C, whatever. That doesn't mean anything and it sounds good, but it's not actionable. But the higher slow fire force actually does damage because people actually act on it in the wrong way. So here's why I think it's wrong for early stage. Remember, I was at Microsoft 
at the heyday in the 90s. And we had, I mean, I had people like who would find me, you know, every which way, this is before LinkedIn even, to try to come and interview there, right? I mean, they would just have people just begging to come interview this company at the peak of their power and the top of the, the heap. But if you're a 10, 20 person company, no one's heard of you for the most part. The problem with hire for is there's, there's three problems. The first is it leaves out the most important thing, which is sourcing. So I used the Microsoft example because sourcing was less important because you had a huge inbound, but you're some startup no one's heard of. People you don't know are not going to come interview there because they don't even know about your company for the most part. It leaves out the most important part, which is sourcing. You've got to put a lot of time and focus in figuring out how you get people to come interview. So let me give you a couple of examples. One is internal referrals. You've got to work with everybody in your company to go through the very best people then and get those people to at least have a conversation with you about the company. Number two is you got to get creative. I used to work called non-recruiting events. So when I was at, for instance, at Bangalore in India, uh, with Zynga, we had a huge, nice office space with an auditorium and Stanford did this recruiting for the business school. I didn't even go to the business school. I was undergrad there. But they, in August, would go around the world and they wanted to host it somewhere for Bangalore, which was the biggest city for them to do that in India. So I hosted it there and I got up for two minutes before and said, Hey, we're hiring. Here's all the roles. If you want to. So that's an example. You could do alumni events at your office. You could do every Friday, do demos or once a month, happy hours where people can come over because there's a lot lower bar for someone to come over just to a happy hour versus come interview. So you've got to think of ways that you get your know, message out there to source the candidates. It could be doing PR. It could be doing PR and focus on engineers because maybe that's not TechCrunch. Maybe it's some other magazine or whatever sources that they read. But you've got to put a lot of focus. So our slow Firefox leaves out all that. And that should be a huge part of what you're doing. Number two, why would you hire someone in a super competitive market? I think what the advice is trying to say is don't rush it. Don't feel pressure. Don't compromise. And I totally agree with that. But you mustn't dilly-dally. And here's an example of why. Because I do this all the time. I mean, helping companies and they'll literally go slow. They'll radio silence. Always the same excuse. Sorry, we're busy. We launched this or that. And the candidate will either lose interest or most probably get other offers and take offers. So I'll give you an example. I was helping a company, computer vision engineer, and they had tried a year and they had gone on LinkedIn and found out, I don't know, close to a hundred people that they thought fit what they were looking for. And they were excited. Hey, this is easy. There's a hundred people. Well, it turns out those people were not waiting for this company, which is about 12 people at the time to contact them. So they ended up only talking to maybe a, a fifth of those, so 20 people or so. And then of course, not everybody worked out and ended up giving two offers and they were all excited after this process and both those offers got turned out. One of the people went to Waymo, one went somewhere else. They were nowhere, right? So anyway, I, I invested, started working with them on this hire. And it took me a while. It took several months, not a year, less time. But I found someone that I thought, I found a number of people, but somebody I thought was particularly good. I happened to be at the company for lunch. I was nearby and we stopped in for lunch. And I asked the guy, the, the founder, how's it going with this person? And the founder was like, oh yeah, next week I'm going to do a screen, a phone screen. I'm like, look, this person is... I think they're getting some interest from other companies. Why don't you just invite them to lunch tomorrow? Just like you had me here. You have lunch provided at your office. And the founder's like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I was like, you don't need to, first of all, ice cream them, but also, you know, just act on it. And they had the person there. And, oh, my God, they found out the next day because I was there on a Thursday. The Friday, the person was great. 
and they gave him an offer. By Monday, that person had four other offers. So now they had five offers, and they ended up actually going to the startup. And they turned down Waymo, they turned down Cruise, and they turned down Neuro. But by the time this founder would have done that phone screen, a week later, this person would have had four other offers and would have not been on the market. So that's what I'm talking about when you say hire slow. That founder was probably thinking, hey, I'm hiring slow. I'm not rushing it. I'm not. But what I say is act as if the person is the greatest person in the world. Get them through the interview process. Get back to them. You can always then go slow on the back end. Once they get excited, the candidate can get really excited, and you can go slow on that part, but don't go slow up front, all right? And then the third part is the fire fight. Look, if somebody is a bad attitude, they do something illegal, the harassment, of course, right? And even some people, it's not a fit. And, and sometimes it's obvious, like maybe it's just, there shouldn't even be at a startup or whatever. But many times, and I know this because I've been there, I've been a manager and I've helped this. It's a 12 person company and you've been going for two years. You're going hundred miles an hour and somebody comes in from some other company and they're stepping on to a train that's going super fast. And when in the first week or first month, they may not have the project. They may probably weren't even onboarded at all. And they may not find their footing, right? They may even stumble on a project. And the founders are five fast. Well, what happens then is it's such a sort of cultural thing because a lot of the other people are like, hey, that person was really good. They were trying. They just didn't – nobody explained anything to them. Like, it was like, am I going to be next? They're thinking. And there's something wrong with this company maybe. And then they start looking. So you want to make sure you onboard well, give them projects that be successful, have a plan. Clearly, you know, if it's not working out, but I tell you, I've had many situations like that and I've gotten people onto tracks where they've been stars and very productive. So anyway, in summary, that's why that advice, sourcing is critical. It's probably the most important part. You want to act with deliberate speed, but don't be rushed uh, for the hiring. And then with the, uh, you want to make sure the onboarding. So when you do fire, it's for the real reasons, not your fault, basically. All right. Yeah, Silicon Valley and tech in general, they are super competitive areas. So the power is shifting away from hiring managers towards the talent. And talented people have choice. It is actually now very, very important for CEOs. This is uh, very refreshing, very interesting to hear your perspectives. I'm curious to see how your experience was in India. Well, India was an amazing personal and professional experience. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be there. Zingo, you understand, went from zero in revenue to a billion in four years, which was the record. May still be, actually. It went from a small company to something like 4,000 in three years. And so literally, you cannot, you can literally not interview, <laughs> can't interview those many, that many people. You can't even hire those in San Francisco because you cannot even do the interviews over the, that time period, just the time. So you've got to look for other. And there's very few places you can really scale a tech company, especially back then, it was 2009, 2010. Today, their tech is Silicon Valley is everywhere. It's a state of mind and a way of doing business and a domain. But even today, there's a couple of centers where you can scale. You can start a company anywhere, but places, Tel Aviv, Beijing, New York, Seattle, Austin, place Boston, and Bangalore is one of those places. It made sense to go there and essentially do a replica of the San Francisco office. And what made it exciting for us was that it wasn't just an Indian office supporting a U.S. office because each game is its own business unit with its own P&L and run separately. We could own them. So we ended up running you know, a number of the games out of India. It wasn't cost saving. It was about talent. Where can you get the sort of same level of talent that you can in San Francisco 
at scale and there's not many places we went there to do that to tap into talent okay well i want to switch to the next segment where i ask you about community involvement is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about and which one yes well i've always been passionate about nonprofits i have three children and they're 7 4 and 1 years old a 7 year old when he was 4 a couple years ago got cancer childhood cancer and University of California, San Francisco, is where he was treated, and they saved his life, which is amazing. And there's a organization called Swim Across America that organizes 70 swims around the United States and raises money for childhood cancer research. The San Francisco event, which happens in September, benefits the very same doctor that treated our son, the very same center at UCSF, and I had. done triathlons and base swims and all that stuff for years teaming training and other things like that when i found out about this i did it and that's what i do every year and that's become my my focus of fundraising we also support camp okaizu which is for childhood cancer survivors unfortunately the camp burned down in the fires last summer so they're looking for donations uh, for that make a wish foundation which also supported him so those are the kind of the three groups that we focus on childhood cancer Steven thank you for sharing your personal stories and thanks a lot for coming to this podcast and sharing a lot of wisdom on recruiting which is one of the most difficult things for founders and I look forward to sharing your nuggets of wisdom with the world right thanks very much thanks for your time thank you for listening to the sure shot entrepreneur i hope you enjoyed listening to real life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs please subscribe to the podcast and post a review Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.